All right, you ready for this? Ready. Welcome back to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. We missed you last week. We really did. I had a great Labor Day weekend. I hope you did as well. We have a a jam-packed episode this week, although we will not have Chris Newmarker. Chris is buried, buried in in our medical design and outsourcing handbook, which will be coming out shortly. So uh, we're actually going to forego the Newmarkers newsmakers this week because the two interviews I have are extensive. And I think super interesting. So uh, we'll just present those. Once again, we're following a theme. And this episode's theme is TAVR, specifically Sapien. Uh, We're going to talk about Edward's acquisition of PVT, percutaneous valve technologies, of course, which occurred back in 2003. And it's a significant topic or timely topic because TAVR secured or Sapien secured FDA approval 10 years ago. We're coming up on an anniversary later this year. So we'll reference that slightly in this conversation, but with this in this episode, but this is really a, a chance to speak really with two of the pioneers in this space. So first we'll talk with uh, Stan Rowe. Stan was the CEO of PVT. He is now the CEO of NXT Biomedical Incubator. It's an effort he's working on to uh, create new companies. We'll talk about that. But in our conversation with Stan, we'll talk about the origins of Sapien and Taver. We'll talk about more broadly the innovative process, what works and what doesn't, and uh, why engineers and entrepreneurs are so essential to uh, to the process. We'll talk a bit about the difference between good and bad acquisitions. He's had experiences with both. And uh, finally, Stan has some interesting thoughts on the impact of COVID on innovation, more, most specifically our inability to gather at conferences. And uh, that's of particular interest to me because we're going to be putting together our uh, device talks events next year. Our first one will be in Boston on May 10th and 11th. We're starting to post uh, agendas and speakers up there. So uh, please do check it out. It's at devicetalks.com. Our second interview is with Larry Wood. Larry is a corporate vice president at Edwards Life Sciences. He leads the transcatheter aortic valve business. And uh, he was part of the decision to acquire PVT. We'll talk about that, why Edwards moved to acquire PVT, why it's important to be first to market with innovative devices. I thought that was a really fascinating point that that Larry made that was brought up by a board member at the time when Edwards was mulling over the acquisition. And uh, it's, it's really a great story to follow, to follow an idea, a real groundbreaking, earth-shaking, disruptive technology like Taver to follow it from begin to end, so uh, or or beginning to commercialization. So these two interviews together, I think, work really well, and I'm sure you'll find them both very useful. But before I begin my interview with Stan Rowe, I wanted to let you know that our next Device Talks Tuesdays will be happening on September 21st. It's brought to you by Sagenti Innovation, and uh, they're going to be talking with us about how to bring the FDA into the innovative process early and how to do it well. So it's an important conversation. If you want to find out more about that talk, you can go to devicetalks.com. Of course, you can also scan the QR code that's on the graphic of this podcast, the episode graphic. There's a QR code there. Just scan it and you can find out more information and register for the meeting. If you'd like to be part of it, you can watch it live or you can watch it on demand. 
Okay, without any further delay, I'd like to start my interview with Stanton Rowe. He is now CEO of NXT Biomedical Incubator. Well, Stan Rowe, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Stan, you're, you're one of my uh, sort of return guests. You were on my, my previous podcast where we uh, I got to get to know you and I advise folks who are listening to find uh, the, the MedTech Talk podcast where I interviewed you. Uh, I remember you started your, your career in, uh, in pharmaceuticals, but you decided that it was boring <laughs> and that you really, <laughs> you, you didn't like the whole adjustment of dosages and you really preferred MedTech. Uh, so what was your first, uh, I'll fast forward a bit, what was your first gig in, in MedTech? And then we'll, we'll talk a bit about uh, Taver, about what you're up to now and about sort of where we are uh, in innovation as it relates to, uh, to networking and, and meetings. So how'd you get started again in MedTech? You know, I looked at various jobs and ended up going into product management, which mm-hmm. um, I really think is a fantastic place to learn MedTech because you manage the entire life cycle of a product or product line. And so you have to be at the front end with R&D. You have to understand the supply chain. You have to support manufacturing. You have to get involved in quality assurance. You have to support the sales force. You have to re- represent the product internally and run the numbers on it. And so it's a pretty broad ranging um, responsibility. And I think it's a great place to learn. What? Are, yeah, it's a great point. What, what are the proper skill sets for someone in that role? I mean, do they need to be a good people person, very organized? How deep does their technical know-how have to be? Well, I think it's a little bit like... Um, it's mini general management, right? But mm-hmm. it's for a, a much more specific area. And I always say in general management, you can never really be good at your job because you have to know everything. <laughs> so <laughs> reporting, you know, it, reporting the same. Yes. <laughs> right, right. So the, the idea that, you know, all of the finances and all of the R and D and all the medicine and all of the strategy and everything that's going on in the sales force you know, it, it's kind of ludicrous, but the idea is that you you throw a nut around as much as you can can fathom and support. And so I think it's a great place to learn that broad set of skills that I think is really essential for upper level management. And, uh, you know, it's not an easy job, but it's a really fun job with a lot of breadth. So I think you have to go into it with, yes, very good collaborative skills. It helps to really understand how the sales force is doing, how they're feeling. If you've carried a bag before, it's really helpful. But I think, you know, the the, the finance, the R&D, the supply chain, nobody teaches that breadth of, of um, know-how. So mm-hmm. a lot of it is on the job training. It's a great place to learn. And you started doing that at uh, J&J? No, I actually started uh, when I left JNJ. I went down to a small company in Atlanta called Healthdyne. I did that for a while, and then I moved out to California. These were critical care products, mm-hmm. and I and I joined a company called Spectrumed that ended up um, being sold eventually. And um, there, I did um, kind of the group product management. And then I went from there to Cordis, where I was um, director of marketing, kind of running that whole product management group and getting them. That's that was my big introduction into interventional cardiology, which uh, 
certainly changed my career. It's also where I went, met my wife, which is probably the most important thing in in that move. Yeah, yeah I would say that I, that's the, that's the proper stance <laughs> to have. Good, good call, Stan. Uh, is that where you first uh, in, encountered or were introduced to the the Taver technology? No, that was pre-Taver. So this was in the era of balloon angioplasty, mm-hmm. and so this is where I was first exposed to stents, right? And that became an important part of my career because I went from there back to J&J where I managed the Paul Meshout stent. You know, that was uh, quite an experience where even back then there were so many cardiologists who said, you can't put stainless steel in someone's coronary artery. It will thrombose and they'll die. Uh, you know, that's irresponsible to even think about that. So, you know, it was an early introduction into the fact that sometimes really good ideas are met with really bad responses because they're just too novel for physicians to get their their heads around. And I think that's something a lot of people don't really get is that the practice of medicine is utilizing the tools that they have with, you know, the best expertise and the best patient care that they can manage. And sometimes a really good idea can be dismissed by really talented physicians because just the novelty is too great for them to get their heads around. Well, I, I was listening to the podcast we recorded in 2019, and I stopped or got caught in a phrase that you offered that uh, you said it takes, quote, a small streak of nihilism to really like look at a medical problem and say, is that really the, the best way we can do this and to offer uh, an alternative? Is that is that what you're referring to here? Just being able- Well, it is, but, but, but remember, Tom, that physicians, you know, you, I think they knock all that nihilism out of your head when you're going through medical school, right? <laughs> right. Medical school is about going in and learning this massive amount of knowledge about what people have learned about physiology and anatomy and pathology and how to treat these illnesses with all these pharmaceuticals and devices. And the breadth and depth of that is just staggering, right? I mean, I have such respect for people who have been through medical school, but they have no time for nihilists, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Learn what's out there. And um, at the end, right, what what are you handed? You're handed things like the AACC AHA guidelines, right? There are a few thousand AHA ACC guidelines. And that's how you're supposed to practice medicine, because this is what we, you know, this is our accumulated knowledge. Of course, only 11% of that is is with the high scientific evidence, right? A lot of those ACC AHA guidelines are just a bunch of very knowledgeable guys with a lot of clinical practice who say, here's what we think the best standard of care is, but not without a lot, not with a lot of scientific rigor behind it. And Guess what? A lot of that stuff is wrong. That's amazing. And so the so the and it's not. It, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, and that doesn't reflect what's possible. And is that the role of of the medtech R and D person, the engineer, the entrepreneur, to to inject that nihilism or to ask those questions? That that's that's, that's absolutely right. Right. No, that's 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 a great perspective. And and you're right. The physicians are penalized if they don't operate with the, within those rules. I mean, they they really need to follow what was done they're not really encouraged or rewarded at least in their own profession for for taking chances unless it's a one-off where they 
obviously their intention is to is to improve a patient's life. Yeah, yeah, and I so I often think about the fellow right who's you know the the senior physician sitting there saying now watch what I'm going to be doing in this operation mm -hmm. and do exactly as I teach you. And if you deviate from that, you're going to kill someone, mm -hmm. right? That's not exactly a culture of innovation, nor do you want it to be, right? Yeah. <laughs> you don't want this guy playing around inside of you. But uh, it tells you the kind of thinking uh, that they're brought up with. Uh, and there are very few that ever break out of that. And I have huge respect for those guys who eventually do, but um, they're kind of few and far between. So we have to understand that that's their perspective, but it is our role to look at it. Uh, we haven't been through that training and we can look at things and say, really, are, are patients being well served by this? Mm -hmm. Is that the best we can do? Um, you know, I, I mean, there's some procedures I look at and I shake my head and think, you know, 30 years from now, we're going to say, Really, we did that. <laughs> you know, we right. We treat atrial fibrillation by frying a third of the left atrium, right, with RF or cryotherapy, or you know, we we're killing off a third of the left atrium to treat um, reentrant pathways. There's got to be a better answer than that, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know what it is yet, well but. You know, there's got to be a better answer. Well, I know you're. I know you're trying to find those answers. We'll get into into that <laughs> later on. But I'll finish up your uh, sort of walk through your career. So you were at J and J until uh, till '96. You would you mentioned Cordis. Uh, you were vice president of business development and advanced tech, and then at J and J, vice president of advanced technology and business development. So sounds like it just kind of inverted the the titles. But what uh, <laughs> what happened in 1996? And, uh, and then let's fast forward to your starting percutaneous valve technologies. Well, J&J uh, &J bought Cordis, mm. and um, it was one of the worst integrations in history. They lost, um, ultimately, all of the top Cordis management and all of the J&J &J management over time. And um, so... Do you have an understanding as to why? What went wrong? Was there one thing or... Um, well, you know... Uh, I think one of the things... Arrogance is the mind killer. <laughs> <laughs> if we're arrogant and we think, well, we're the big guys, we know what we're doing, we can walk in, we get it done. Um, rather than listening and being, you know, approaching problems and challenges with humility, we don't, we, we stop listening when we're arrogant. And I think J&J &J was arrogant in their acquisition of Cordis and then how they managed it. And um, the idea that you lose key talent on both sides there really spelled the demise of Cordis long-term. Mm -hmm. uh, they never made the competitive stints they needed. They never leveraged the breadth of the product line well, and they eventually sold it off. Um, so I think that um, some big companies don't necessarily respect the kind of depth of knowledge that people in our industry develop over time with customers, um, how sales are actually conducted, what's important in product lines. If you don't have that kind of continuity, it's hard to have a strategy that works long term. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to have good people that can implement it. 
And so if you respect that kind of know-how and retain those people and motivate them and create a vision of future, then I think um, those kind of acquisitions could be much, much more productive and um, and serve the kind of the, the concept of the acquisition to begin with. Mm-hmm. But um, I think the data says about half of the acquisitions, even big ones, don't meet the shareholder return value. So they're not without risk, even though they're big. And a lot of it is the integration risk. Oh, that's a great point. So you were at Datascope from 96 to 2000. And then in 2000, you became CEO and president of Percutaneous Valve Technologies. And you founded that with uh, Dr. Marty Leon, of course, and uh, Alain Cribier. Am I saying his right name? His name correctly? Cribier. Cribier. Dr. Dr. Alain Cribier. Uh, The technology from PVT, that was originally in Cordis slash J and J where, where did, where did that come from? What were the origins it's true, of that? It's true. So I, uh, when I was at J and J is where I met Alain Cripier, Stan Rabinovich, who was also our partner in PVT, um, was working halftime in Europe, uh, looking for new technologies. He ran into Cripier, introduced him to me and, and Marv Woodall, the president. We really loved Dr. Cripier and, um, we got introduced to his idea of developing this percutaneous heart valve. And then I went back and started studying this area and um, ran into some of the patents from Henning Anderson, who was actually predated Cribier in describing the first expandable and collapsible valves. Although Cribier had some really important improvements and insights about them. So, we decided we would do some early work with Dr. Cribier and just see if we could prove whether it was feasible or not. Mm-hmm. And that was about the time of the acquisition. So uh, I was really unhappy with uh, the acquisition and I ended up leaving J and J joining Datascope. And then that's, you know, maybe a year later, Cribier called me up and said, Hey, Stan, they're right. You know, J and J not doing what they said they would do. They're just not meeting the terms of our agreement. I said, well, I'm really sorry to hear that um, because he knew I really loved this idea. Mm -hmm. So I said, why don't you reach out to them and ask them to release you from the contract? So you haven't done your side of the thing. And I understood why, you know, they were trying to integrate, you know, 50 R&D projects in J&J with 75 projects in Cordis. And this was some crazy idea nobody had ever heard of before. Um, So that, kind of fell off the table. And um, in fact, you know, uh, Cribier went back and got a release. And uh, then he called me up and said, uh, we should do something with this. That's when we started it. And um, again, uh, I can give my dear wife huge credit that uh, <laughs> when, I, when I decided to leave a vice president's job to start this company, she's the one who said, um, Rather than why are you doing this crazy thing? She said, it's about time. Oh, that's awesome. And, and uh, yeah, so, um, you know, it was, it was risky. It was something no one had done before. And, uh, you know, every surgeon I ever talked with said it was a stupid idea and would never work. So 
there was not a lot of support for it. There were a few, just a few of us who thought this was possible. That's, and that's, I love to drill down into what the tech is and, and how it came about. And I did recall that from our previous conversation where you said the surgeons were essentially saying, look, we can, we're helping every person who needs surgery. We're doing it right. We don't need to, we don't need any improvement here. And your point was like, yeah, but there are people who would benefit from another procedure that isn't surgery. And it's sort of, going to where uh, providing pr- providing the customer something they don't even know they need, which was what Steve Jobs famously said at, at, at Apple, or at least he's a, it's attributed to him. So yeah. what what was, talk a bit about the uh, transcatheter aortic heart valve, uh, what was it uh, designed to do? And did it ultimately become what you thought it would be or, or how much sort of pivoting or adjustments were mm-hmm. there to the mm-hmm. technology? Well, I'll start with, I mean, the concept was, of course, um, pretty clear to me that these patients who were mostly older, right, the average age of a patient undergoing aortic valve replacement is low 70s. Um, their only alternative, right, the, the only thing that works is open heart surgery. Mm-hmm. And so when you have to split open your chest, go on cardiopulmonary bypass, when the median age is 72 or 73, imagine there are a lot of patients in their 80s. There are case reports of patients in their 90s. And um, and so j- just having one way to treat this seemed like a really bad alternative, right? And, and we certainly know there are patients that are at higher surgical risk. And anytime you do open heart surgery, there's a lot of morbidity and recovery time. And the older you are, the harder that is. So the concept just made very, very intuitive sense to me, um, despite the fact that surgeons said, you know, we don't need this. We treat all the patients. We have perfect outcomes. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a stupid idea that will never work. And I'll give you five reasons why it'll never work. Um, I always say, you know, no one asked the stupid idea, the stupid, the stupid question. The stupid question was, why would I send a non-surgical patient to a surgeon? Mm-hmm. Right. Surgeons do surgery. Right. And so the physicians who do the work on these patients are typically cardiologists or internists. They learn of aortic stenosis. And then if it's a severe AS and they're symptomatic, they send them on to a surgeon. Well, if the patient is deemed to be non-surgical, why in the world would you send them to a surgeon? Mm-hmm. So, in fact, the surgeons don't see many patients who are non-surgical. And if you ask them, they said, oh, yeah, I turn down one or two patients a year, right? So, but that doesn't mean they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. They were just sitting out there needing some alternative. And the fact is, there were many, many more out there than anybody ever perceived. Uh, it's one of those marketplaces. And I, and I think that's true today. It's hard to see the unserved patient population. We tend to accept these things that are standards of care, right? Mm-hmm. And even though patients are not well served by them. I mean, cirrhosis patients today have fluid accumulation every week and have to go in two to three times a week to have their, their belly strength. Mm -hmm. Why is that a good idea? I mean, I'm not saying I have a perfect solution for that, but you you have to see these problems through the eyes of the patients, Mm -hmm. right? And non-surgical patients, by the way, they have very poor outcomes, right? Um, The early data on the natural history of aortic stenosis 
so so they fall off a cliff. Um, so the idea was to to provide that alternative. Now, ultimately, of course, I dreamed one day we would have this would get good enough to actually compete with surgery, right? Because just like with coronary stenting, it had the advantage of shorter hospital stays, less morbidity, less invasive, shorter recovery times, um, not the same kind of should not have the same kind of bleeding complications or kidney malfunction that you have with uh, going on cardiopulmonary bypass. So there were a lot of potential benefits to this as it got better and better. How do you push past that? intransigence from the surgeons or, or the, 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 the clear mm-hmm. statement that they say this is a stupid idea. Do you go looking for a clinical champion, another physician, an interventional, interventionalist, someone else who says, no, this is a great idea? Or do you simply rely upon your conversations with patients and your knowledge of the technology to say, no, this will, this will take root somehow, somewhere? So one of the things I did to kind of make sure I wasn't just digging a dry hole was I reached out to the people who had done balloon valvuloplasty. Mm-hmm. Um, balloon valvuloplasty was uh, developed in the early eighties. And in fact, Dr. Cribier was the champion of this and um, it was considered to be a, you know, a non-surgical procedure, obviously to treat patients with aortic stenosis, which is balloon dilation of the aortic valve. And it worked acutely pretty well. Patients went from 0.5, 0.6 square centimeters in valve area to about 1 or 1.1 square centimeter, and they felt a lot better acutely. The problem was they had about a 70 to 80% restenosis rate. And so it was very disappointing in this long-term outcomes. But when I went and reached out to these physicians who had pioneered this, they told me patients came out of the woodwork. Hmm. And so between that and kind of this rationale I developed around, you know, all these non-surgical patients are sitting in the, at the referring physician's doorstep waiting for some alternative. Um, I felt pretty comfortable that there was a marketplace out there quantifying it was a challenge, mm-hmm. right? There was no good data quantifying it until later when we actually did some of those studies um, that looked at how of the percentage of patients who get who are diagnosed with severe aortic stenosis in an echo lab, what percentage go on and get surgery? And it was, I don't know, it was something like 40 percent. Wow. And what exactly was the problem that you were the medical problem that you were solving with this? So aortic stenosis is a chronic uh, narrowing, takes probably, you know, 10 or 15 years of chronic narrowing of the aortic valve, which, of course, sits between the left ventricle and the aorta. A normal valve area is about four and a half square centimeters all, of course, all of your blood supply going to your body systemically goes through the aortic valve. And imagine if that valve area goes down below one square centimeter. So this is a huge reduction in, in the valve opening mm-hmm. area. And so the left ventricle has to work so much harder. And so um, obviously what you get is heart failure, 
syncope, which is fainting spells, um, and, and you get sudden death. Um, the, I would say the biggest symptom patients show up with is just you know, lack of exercise tolerance, right? Which is kind of a heart failure symptom. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it clearly leads to death fairly early once it's become symptomatic and severe. So it needs to be treated. And, um, and so the only way pa- patients could be treated uh, for decades was open heart surgery, which is, by the way, a remarkable procedure and done expertly by many, many cardiothoracic surgeons. Um, it's just invasive. Um, and if you could get the same result from going in through the femoral artery and snaking a catheter up to the aortic valve, opening up a stent that carried a valve, okay, um, doing that procedure in an hour rather than several hours in an operating room, the potential for recovery time and morbidity could be reduced dramatically. And I guess the great news is, Tom, it, to your earlier question, it did meet all of my expectations, right? We started our studies, partner one study was in high risk and non-surgical patients. It was a very good scientific trial that was probably very, very flawed ethically. Mm-hmm required by the FDA, because basically we knew the outcome of not treating aortic stenosis. If you have non-surgical patients who are not getting surgery, they die, Hmm. right? And so basically patients were randomized to death, which Hmm. is a pretty, pretty bad trial. Um, That's what it showed. It showed that, you know, this technology saves those lives, so it was very strong scientific evidence. It's just hard to see patients randomized to death, which I, I kind of fundamentally disagree with as a trial design. Was that something you resisted at the time? Yeah. But, um, so one of the ironies of how the FDA behaved was they put the review of the transcatheter heart valve and interventional cardiology product into the cardiothoracic surgical group at FDA. Mm -hmm. So imagine how well that was received. Just a disruptive technology that no one really wanted to, no one wanted to champion. Exactly. Exactly. And so they threw up every roadblock they could, including, you know, what I think is very, you know, good scientific trial that was, um, I think, eth- ethically challenged. Wow. But, uh, you know, we did that trial, and then we were able to move on and do uh, partner two, which was intermediate risk patients, and then ultimately partner three, which was low risk patients. And all three of those succeeded very well in demonstrating that this valve is safe and effective across a broad range of patients. And, um you know, I think some of the more recent studies, uh, Partner 3 trial, um, said that this is uh, not only clinically uh, advantageous over surgery, but also medico-economically favorable. So it, you have the benefit of both lowering cost and improving outcomes. And that's about as high price as you can get in medicine. It's amazing. And and you got some early support. Well, I mean, you actually started the company in, in, in 2000, sold it in, in 2004, which is a 
very short time for, for a med tech. Within those four years, you got financial support, if I remember correctly, from J&J, Boston Scientific, and, and you had a third corporate on the board, correct? I'm trying to remember who it was. Yeah. Yeah. So we had Medtronic, Medtronic. and Boston Scientific yep. there. So the um, I mentioned the Anderson was the first guy that thought of this. I licensed the Anderson patents from Hartport. That they'd been sitting on these patents for years. I licensed those patents three weeks before J&J bought them. Wow. <laughs> That's that's great timing. Sometimes I guess yeah. sometimes it takes a little bit of luck and good timing, I suppose. Yes, yeah. So I was lucky to to pull those out, and and so when J and J bought Hartport, they uh, since we had given them some ownership in PVT in exchange for the Hartport patents, they ended up owning part of PVT. So okay, uh, that that's how we ended up with J and J, Medtronic, and Boston all sitting on our our board. But, but Edwards ultimately came in and uh, acquired the company. How, how did that come together? And if I recall you, this was a, a positive acquisition uh, since you've remained with the company for a good, for a good time after that. But how, uh, talk a little bit about the acquisition and, and what came a short time after. Well, I called up Mike Masalem um, before TCT of 2003. And I said, let's have breakfast. And Mike was the CEO of, um, and still is the CEO of Edwards, a very talented guy, a uh, very nice guy. And um, I said, let's have breakfast. And he said, uh, okay. So I did what any good CEO would do. Um, and, but of course, I meant it. I said, um, you know, Mike, uh, PBT should be an Edwards company. And he said, well, why is that? And I said, well, because PBT offers both the biggest risk and the biggest opportunity to Edwards. You're the leading heart valve company in the world. I said, um, you know, if this technology really takes off the way I think it will, it could have a huge impact on your surgical business long-term. And, um, and of course, um, that's the damage side. But of course, if you bought the company and really developed this technology, it could have a huge driver to your growth. And of course, the biggest driver to Edwards over the past 18 years has been percutaneous heart valve, which has driven billions of dollars in value into Edwards. Um, so it, it did kind of meet that criteria. I think Mike was concerned that I had J&J, Medtronic, and Boston all sitting on my board. So it was a bit of maneuvering to actually make all that work. <laughs> Um, in a way that was positive for everybody. Yeah. Were, were, were there intentions of the other three to, to make an acquisition or? Well, I think they invested because they of that sure. interest. Yeah. yeah. Um, so. But sometimes they don't. Sometimes they, do, well, sometimes they just want to sit in and they may not have active interest, but it may be a someday sort of acquisition. Was anyone intent upon acquiring at that same time? Well, my, I guess my perspective on that is um, the way Boston typically bought things, whereas they would pay a little bit up front and uh, have a big back end as a you know, performance-based payout. That was kind of their modus operandi for, for doing acquisitions at the time. And this obviously looked like a new frontier in intervention for them, and they've always been great pioneers in interventional medicine. Medtronic, if you remember, was the second largest heart valve company. Mm -hmm. 
behind Edwards, and they had a hard foul group, which was and and a great interventional group. So we were a great fit for Medtronic also. And Steve Osterley, who's was their chief scientist and a brilliant guy, sat on our board. And I think he was very enthusiastic about PVT. I think their challenge was uh, the heart valve group at Medtronic thought this was a stupid idea and would never work. <laughs> so, so imagine that, right? And um, and so they um, they kind of fought against that. By the way, I think much the same attitude occurred, you know, was present at Edwards mm-hmm. that the surgical heart valve group thought this was a bit of folly on the part of uh, Edwards to buy into this technology. Um, and I think, you know, if you were steeped in cardiac surgery, why wouldn't you reflect the attitudes of these surgeons? So I get it. I get it that they would be very, very skeptical that there was a need for this and that it could work. Um, they were just reflecting the customers that they were very close to. Well, we're going to talk to uh, to Larry Wood uh, at, at Edwards sort of about the, the Taver story from there. So uh, I want to follow sort of your path after that. You, you went later on to at Edwards to sort of lead up an internal innov- innovation group, correct? Like you actually, That's right. you called it an adoption agency. When I talked to you previously, you <laughs> <laughs> sound like a, like an animal shelter, but uh, what, uh, what was your, uh, what was your, what was your function and what was the name of the group and what was your, your function and then sort of, how did you work with the, the various different elements at, uh, at Edwards? Yeah. So uh, the advanced technology group, um, was made up of, um, I would say, kind of two core um, capabilities. One was kind of early stage product development, and the second was kind of engineering services. So um, that that could be shared across the company. And I still love this vision, right? So. We had rapid prototyping capability. We had a world-class animal lab. We had material science. We had things like human factors capability. We had uh, rapid um, early stage manufacturing, which is always a big deal, by the way, going from making 10 or 20 thing lots to making tens of thousands needs an interim place for manufacturing. We had a good early stage manufacturing group. And of course we had uh, early stage clinical regulatory and quality. And um, so we conceptualized prototype tested and brought through early clinicals, several new technologies, including one of the absolute leading products at Edwards uh, today, which is Pascal, hmm. uh, their, their uh, edge-to-edge repair product, and many others came out of um, Advanced Technology Group, but that's one that's probably going to have a really big impact for them. Um, so we, uh, you know, we did early tricuspid work, and, you know, a lot of, uh, we, we ended up killing a lot of projects, too. I think that's the culture of innovation um, in big companies is hampered by your ability to test things and kill them because no one wants to be a part of a project that was killed. Do you, do you, have, you, do you have an estimate of what your batting average was with ideas that were? De- yeah, that- I think we were about, we were about 50%. Okay. 
which I thought was really, really good. Um, you consider venture capital about two and 10 yep. do well. I thought we were doing pretty darn well. Um, so I think that um, doing that early stage work in big companies is particularly challenging because that culture of innovation doesn't support killing projects. If you can't kill projects, you can't do innovation because you have to be able to take on things that you don't know whether they're going to work or not. Or, you know, I say one question is whether things work. And then the other question is whether they work well enough, right? Well enough to be adopted, well enough to be competitive, well enough to be reimbursed, uh, well enough for, for KOLs to be excited about it. And so you have to take it through that early stage of development um, and be able to kill it and still have people be motivated. And I think that's a really challenging thing to be able to do. And uh, But I think it's possible to do it. And I think we proved that at Edwards. And I was really proud of that group. And, and I, I recall your belief in, in, in terms of uh, biomedical engineers that they should be more they should know more than just the, the technical capabilities of, of the device they're they're working on or the technology they're developing but they really need to understand the market and and the, the bigger picture is that something you number one am i am i am i restating that correctly and number two is that if i am is that something that you were building at, at edwards sort of a more holistic view of biomedical design yeah absolutely i mean i think um I guess the background for that is the, the way we used to do it uh, years ago was ludicrous, right? Marketing would go out, ask customers what they want, and they come back in and tell engineering sitting in their silo, okay, here's, here's the product and definition I want you to build, which, of course, was completely infeasible to build, right? It was the perfect product, mm -hmm. right? So engineering would go back there, tinker around and say, well, we can't build that but we can build this. Is this okay? And then marketing goes back and tests that idea and says, well, what, is this okay? And so <laughs> it, it was, just, it was completely ludicrous. It didn't make any sense. So what, you know, I'm still a huge believer that you need great early stage marketing. And we had that at an advanced tech. You, you need great marketing people, but their job is to manage that product definition. But, it's also to educate the engineers as to what customers want and why they need it. So I do absolutely believe that biomedical engineers have to know the anatomy, the pathology, the standard of care, the competition. They have to understand patents. So I think of it as the three-legged stool. Mm -hmm. They need to understand this business side of medical product development, the patents, the comp the the you know how we do the business, the regulatory cycle, the quality systems, all that stuff around the the business part of it, the planning and strategy. They have to understand the biomedical engineering side and be good at that at the same time. And you know when they get the you know the all sides of this together, then the 10,000 decisions they make during product development, okay, will be better informed, right? How do I know what compromises to make mm -hmm. if I really don't understand how medicine is practiced, right? 
And so this medicine, biomedical engineering business are those three-legged stools that I think are key for us to be effective developers of products. And, and do you feel that the, the biomedical programs, Stanford and, and the others, uh, are, are taking that all into account? It seems to fit what they're, uh, what, they're, what they're trying to do. I think that they make a very they, – they're doing better than ever in trying to give a broader perspective. They have so much to cover in biomedical engineering mm-hmm. itself. I think it's really hard for universities in four years – to get into some of that business side and and deeply into medicine. I mean, there are a lot of biomedical engineers who graduate from biomedical engineering who've never been in a hospital as a biomedical engineer mm-hmm. and, you know, don't know what a 510K is or, you know, um, they don't understand quality systems. Um, so uh, I, think, I think we can always do better in, in doing that. I think some of the programs that I love that get into that are, yes, the kind of the biodesign type programs and the senior design projects, which kind of force people to go through, you know, some of that process, which is really key. Interesting. So, uh, two more things. Uh, obviously, enjoying this conversation. It could go on for a long time. <laughs> but what <laughs> what are you up to now at, at NXT? Tell us quickly about what what you're working there, and then uh, one final one final question. Yeah, so I'm very privileged in my stupid idea of retirement to um, <laughs> to run a group called NXT Biomedical, which is a medical device incubator. There are two kinds of incubators. One kind of is a place where you house small startups and provide services to them. Oh, we're not that kind. We're more or less like the foundry kind of um, incubator where we incubate ideas into startup companies. And so uh, we're fortunately backed by Deerfield Capital, which is a great group out of New York. They're, they you know invest in medical um, kind of from the public markets all the way into these startups. And... Um, so there are our principal backers, but we also have Johnson and Johnson and Edwards Life Sciences as partners with us, and um, that's what we're doing. And you know, we since most of my team, like myself, have been in cardiovascular medicine. We're doing a number of things outside of cardiovascular. Still doing some things in cardiovascular, but we certainly are enjoying the kind of the breadth of the work we're doing. We have three projects that are in kind of the advanced phases of feasibility. Um, and we hope to spin out our first companies next year. Wow. And um, then we have three or four more that are in the earlier phases. And we're working through through those, but they, you know, they all are really interesting, provocative, challenging. We we're, you know, we don't typically do work that's very iterative. If, if uh, I always say, if you're not breaking the rules, you're not doing innovation. <laughs> and so uh, we're, we're trying to break lots of rules. And is, is, I know you're, you're affiliated with Deerfield, the private equity group. Are they funding all of these startups or are you syndicating these deals? Yeah. So I, I will be syndicating okay. some of them. Yeah. We've reached out to several uh, strategics um, to do some of these um, alongside of us. And um so we're we're making really nice progress in syndicating a few of these that we think are particularly good fits for 
or strategic. So, um, yeah, we're 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 certainly open to that. Fantastic. And the final point I wanted to cover, and in, in, in complete honesty to our, our listeners. Uh, you brought the substand. <laughs> we were going to talk about. You mentioned uh, conferences and mm-hmm. what what impact not having those, not meeting in person, might have had on medical device innovation. Anyone who's listening to this podcast knows we'll put it on our conferences, device talks meetings next year. And you're not speaking specifically about our meetings, but uh, just meetings in general. What what impact do you think are not being able to gather in convention halls or hotel lobbies or, or hallways? What what impact do you think has that had on on medical device innovation? You know, I worry that um, we're not having a negative effect on innovation. That you know, I, I just think back on how much chance exposure, uh, what what kind of role that plays in innovation. That the uh, chance hallway discussions, the oh hey Joe, what have you been up to? Oh, I've been thinking about this. I'm I'm not sure about it. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing somebody who has a unique insight and maybe the wrong approach. And you think, well, I could do that better, but that's a really unique idea or seeing a unique problem. I remember walking into medical device conferences and going into kind of areas that are not my area of expertise and being exposed to, to unique problems that I didn't understand before. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think, um, you know, I'm, I'm so happy we have Zoom and Teams and all those things where we've been able to continue to carry on our business, but it formalizes our speech in a way that detracts from, I think, those kind of chance encounters that stimulate innovation. And so I so look forward to getting back to innovation meetings medical device conferences and medical meetings so that um, I can continue to be stimulated and learn more. Fantastic. Well, I hope we can uh, continue this conversation at one of our upcoming device talks meetings. It'd be great to have you. And thanks for, uh, and thanks for joining us on the podcast, Dan. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity. All right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Stan Rowe. Once again, if you wanted to hear more from Stan, I did a podcast and with interview with him a couple of years ago, it's at uh, the podcast was called MedTech Talk, and you can find uh, Stan's interview there if you just Google it. Next up, I'd like to bring again Larry Wood of Edwards Life Sciences. I, I hit upon some of the uh, significant points that Larry made in his conversation. One thing I didn't mention, though, was uh, his unique path to uh, MedTech leadership. Larry really uh, arrived into the MedTech world uh, on, the, on the manufacturing floor and uh came to realize it was an industry that was not only a fulfilling place to work, he enjoyed manufacturing, but he had a moment where he sort of understood the magic behind MedTech. So uh, it's a great conversation. And I really enjoyed talking with Larry Wood. And it's great to have him on the podcast. So now let's hear from Larry Wood. He is Corporate Vice President and Head of Transcatheter Aortic Valve Business at Edwards Life Sciences. Well, Larry Wood, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks. It's great to be here. Great to uh, celebrate Taver's uh, 10 years anniversary of, uh, of its commercialization, or Sapien, I should say. Uh, we can talk a bit about its, its history in, in a bit and what's gone on the past decade plus. But uh, as always, I'd love to find out how our guests found their way to where they are. So what drew you to the, uh, the medtech industry initially, Larry? Um, very straightforward. I just needed a job. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, 
I was uh, I was 19 years old. I had um, worked at a computer printer company, and uh, they moved, and I needed a job, so I went to a job fair. And uh, at the time, the company was American Hospital Supply Corporation, and I got a job as a mechanical assembler three uh, for six dollars and thirty six cents an hour. And uh, thirty six short years later, I'm still here. Wow. So that's quite a climb. I don't know if I've talked to anyone who's worked their way up from uh, from the manufacturing floor. Uh, what was it that sort of uh, caught you up and uh, or you got caught up into and, and sort of led you to pursue this uh, this executive path? How did that unfold? Um, yeah, it, it was interesting. Uh, you know, I was an ops guy and I liked ops. I understood ops and I was 19, so I hadn't gone to college yet. And uh, uh, I'd Graduating high school, I'd worked as a welder because I wasn't I wasn't sure I wanted to go to college. And if you ever have kids and they don't know that they want to go to college, get them a job in a welding shop. And, <laughs> um, and so I, I, you know, I got a job working on manufacturing, and, and I really enjoyed manufacturing, and I liked the company. And and I wouldn't say I, would, I had a real passion for patients at that time. You know, I mean, I was making six bucks an hour. I was just trying to you know feed myself. But um, uh, you know, I the company was growing really fast, and I started coming up through, and then. About a year later, Baxter acquired American Hospital Supply, and we continued to grow. And then um, at some point, um, Baxter decided to spin off some of the old business units that were kind of came with the American Hospital Supply acquisition. And I really wanted to stay with what was Baxter at the time. So I jumped over into our cardiovascular business unit. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when I started working on heart valves and cardiovascular devices. And I, w- I would say that's when things started to change for me. Um, I'll always remember the first time I went in and watched an open heart surgery. And I just, I just thought it was, it was a miracle. Um, mm-hmm. The idea that we saw someone's chest open, we cut out their old valve, we stopped their heart, which I was always told was a terrible thing to do to someone. <laughs> and uh, we saw in a new heart valve that we manufactured, you know, and, and we start their heart back up again and it works and it works you know, 99% of the time is, is, a is, you know, in a good hospital, it was a, was just a remarkable achievement. And just something happened there where I just got very, very passionate about, um, uh, about the therapy and about the patients we treated. And, and I'd say that was, that was the moment that, that things really changed for me. And I went from having a, a, a career to having, you know, a passion. That's amazing. And how, how did you make that transition from working at this company that you believed in on a, on a technology you worked into? I imagine you went back to school, you went to school, got your bachelor's, and I know you ultimately got your MBA, I think, right, as well? I did. I did. Yeah, I was fortunate. Our company was, you know, obviously very supportive of education. And so, you know, using tuition reimbursement made that possible. So I was always grateful for the company for all the support. But it was, you know, I did both my degrees going to night school while I worked full time during the daytime. So, not not an easy pathway necessarily, but um, but a really re- you know really rewarding one when you when you put it all together and it makes you appreciate uh, what people go through, you know when they when they do have to work and go to school at the same time. Absolutely, no, that's a that's a great story. Well, let's fast forward uh, to uh, to the mid uh, well fifteen years ago or so when uh, Edwards acquired uh, the Sapien Technology. And uh, that we've already talked with Stan Rowe sort of about the, the creation of the technology early on. So I'd love to kind of pick up uh, where that left off. What was, can, can you walk us through sort of the, uh, the acquisition and the integration? Were you involved with, with that? And if so, how did that, how did that unfold? Yeah, absolutely. So we had actually started working on um, uh, on a transgather hard valve in 1999. Mm-hmm. And so we were working on that internally. We had our own internal program. It was called Patriot. We had our own valve design. And we, of course, knew what PVT was doing, but we um, we had the arrogance of a heart valve company. And, and we were like, well, look, you know, 
these uh, these other guys are kind of stent companies. They're going to put a valve in a stent and, you know, we're heart valve people. So, you know, clearly we're going to have the better valve. Um, but it became pretty clear to us that PBT was ahead of us. And we were a big company and probably lumbering and moving a little bit slower. And they were moving, uh, you know, really lightning fast with sort of that single minded purpose. Mm-hmm. And we, we had a, a debate at our board of directors and, you know, kind of what we put forward to our board of directors was, um, you know, there's this best versus first thing. And we were sure we would be best, uh, because we didn't understand their technology and we understood ours. So therefore we had to be best. And, um, uh, you know, again, that arrogance and, oh, yeah. um, but, we, but we didn't believe we were going to be first. And so we had this debate and we had a board member at the time who, uh, was Vern Laux, who, uh, just recently passed away, unfortunately, but very influential in uh, both mine and I know Mike Basalm's career as well. And he just made a very clear comment statement that said, you can't be, you can't be best if you're not first. Because he who goes first learns fastest, defines the basis of competition, and they're just able to stay ahead because they just have more information faster than anyone else. That's a great point. It's also not necessarily one I would have put forth. I would think that ultimately best would win win out. Uh, and if you're first with a, with a inferior product, and obviously not saying this is that, that, uh, that you'll eventually lose whatever gains you had being first. But He's suggesting that that's not necessarily the case. Well, when you have something that's rapidly, nobody knew what it was going to take to make a transcout their heart valve work. Right. You know, when you look at what we acquired PVT for, if anybody ever dreamed that it was going to be what it turned into, we would have never been able to acquire it for that price. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, it would have it would have been you know ten times that at least. The, so nobody knew how this was going to work or even if it was going to work, and it was sort of a high risk, high reward proposition. I want to say PBT had probably eight or 10 cases under their belt, but there was about a 50% procedure mortality rate. So it was one of those things when it worked, it was amazing, but when mm-hmm. it didn't work, it died. And, and so it wasn't obvious that this was going to be a, it, it wasn't obvious that this was even going to be a product, let alone it was going to be a, a, a world changing product. Gotcha. But, but when you have that sort of technology, you, you know, you're doing those early cases, you're learning. And if we would have been a year behind, we would have been working, you know, in animals or in cadavers. Well, that's just not the same as doing work in, in people. Mm-hmm. And we just would have kept falling farther and farther behind why they would have kept learning and learning what the shortfalls were and what needed to change. So we, we made the decision to acquire PVT, which, which was no easy thing for us to do, especially given the size we were at the time, but we just were committed, you know, we need to be first and best. And if we're first, if our technology truly is better, we'll be able to prove that out but we'll still have that rapid learning. That's, that's really fascinating. So how did the, uh, you made the acquisition? Uh, did you, how did you go into the, into the integration with what, what intentions did you have and, and were you able to, to execute them? You, I know Stan stayed for a long time, which is unusual. Uh, but, but what, what did, uh, what did you want to achieve with that integration? Well, we, we had our internal Edwards team that had been working on this. And then the PBT team was primarily based in Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, I believe there's about 17 people who were based in Israel. And then a, a Stan and Stan were in, uh, were in New Jersey. And the real focus was how do we, how do we keep the band together? The, the big fear was if you acquire you know, these 17 people, a lot of what you're acquiring is what's in their heads. And if we acquire them and they, they get their payout and they all leave, then we, we have a real problem. Right. And so we, you know, I spent a lot of time traveling to Israel and, and one of the funny ironies is uh, 
the gentleman that, that ran the Israeli plant at the time and still runs the plant for me today, uh, his name is Soft Bosch. And because of his employment contract he had with PBT, Stan Rowe could only be his boss. And so we spent a bunch of time together and really focused on the vision and focused on what we wanted the team to do and our commitment to keeping everyone together. And I remember Stan and I were sitting one time and, and Stan passed him a document and a soft signed it and handed it back to him. And a soft asked me later, he goes, do you know what that was? And I said, no, I don't. And he goes, I just agreed to hire you as my boss. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, and a soft, a soft just became, you know, it, it didn't become, he was always a fantastic partner for me. And, one of the things that I think was the trademark of, of our development at that time, but also has, still continues today, is hierarchy doesn't matter. Best idea matters. Mm -hmm. And I remember early meetings with the Israeli team. You know, I, I was this, you know, hot side executive coming over from California. We just acquired them. So we own them. So I come in with all of that cachet. And I sat there and we were talking about a very technical detail on heart valves, which I consider myself to know quite a lot about. And I made a comment and one of the Israeli engineers, lower level said, he said, yes, he said, I've heard before and I didn't even then either. And uh, I was like, wow, these, these guys are not afraid and they're not intimidated. And that ended up being such a blessing uh -huh. um, because nobody was going to just accept an idea because somebody important said it was true. And, uh, and that just led to just, just incredible, passionate, um, arguments and debates, and we don't like to use the word fight, but they were fights. We were all fighting for what we believed was right in something that was unknowable. Um, but one of the things I will say, too, about the culture, there would be a time where we'd go this big fight and we'd all be arguing, and then Asaf actually would often kind of knock on the table and he'd said, okay, everything has been said, everyone has said it, now we, just, now we need to take a decision. And then we would make the decision, and ultimately it was mine, it wasn't a democracy, and I would make the decision but everyone would then get behind that decision like it was their own. Mm -hmm. um, nobody would say, well, that wasn't my idea, so I'm not really going to back it. Everybody just was like, okay, that's what we said we're going to do, so let's go do it. And we went and did that. And that was just sort of the hallmark of the team from the early days, and I feel like we still do that today. Is, is that atypical or is that typical, sort of that, uh, that lining up behind the, 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 final, the decided path? Um, I, I think it's organizationally mixed. I, I will say I've been in – a lot of different, um, you know, I've been at Edwards this entire time, you know, mm -hmm. we've changed names a couple of times, but it's been the same company, but you work on different project teams and you work with different leaders. And I will say um, it's, it's not uncommon at all for, for the leader, the person in charge to make a decision and the team not to get behind it for whatever reason, either mm -hmm. they don't have confidence in the leader or they just don't believe, or they're just not those kind of people. They're just people who want to be contrarians and, and almost sort of, it becomes more important for them to be right than it is for the project to be, to succeed, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and I think we've all seen those behaviors and it's, it's unfortunate. And I was just blessed that we didn't, we just didn't have that. People got behind the decision and then we ran at it. And it wasn't that we were always right, but I think there was a belief if we all ran in the same direction with our arms locked together, then we'll hit the wall the fastest. And, and if that wall can't be gone through, then we'll bounce off it and we'll change directions but we'll just continue to do it all locked arms and we'll, we'll get there one way or the other, but you can't get there if you have people running in different directions or tugging in different ways. That's a great point. That's a great point. So let's look at, discuss a bit the, uh, the clinical trials that went into obtaining the uh, regulatory approval ultimately, which, uh, which I think came in 2010 or 11. So we, 
we got the first commercial approval in Europe at the end of 07. And then we got the, the commercial approval at the, and I believe it was October of 2011 for the U S. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking FDA. What were those? So what had, uh, there was obviously had already been some clinical work for the CE mark by the time you acquired the company. What, what kind of clinical programs did you have to go put together and what, what did those trials look like? And did they differ from trials you've done in the past? If, and if so, how? Oh yeah, they, they differed greatly. <clears throat> so in the heart valve space, generally for surgical valves, you just run a single arc trial. So you take um, maybe 400 subjects that need their heart valve replaced, you replace their heart valve and you compare the performance of that heart valve to sort of this historical standard. And as long as you, you achieve statistically favorable comparisons to that historical standard, then you're approved. For Europe, that's, that's a little bit what we did. Um, our approval was very limited. It was limited just for people who were inoperable initially. So um, the trial was pretty limited, but it was a single-arm trial. Basically, everybody who had aortic stenosis could get the valve. When we came to start the U.S. trials, because this technology was so revolutionary, FDA required randomized trials, which hadn't been done in the in the heart valve space really at all. And so we had the indication we were seeking was for one group of patients that were inoperable and then a second group of patients that were potentially operable, but very high risk for surgery. Mm-hmm. And that was part of one trial. And we had cohort B, which was the inoperable patients and cohort A, which was the operable patients. But what that meant was we we had to prove that the therapy for inoperable patients was better than doing nothing. So we took 350 people, we randomized them one-to-one to either getting the transcatheter heart valve or getting just medical management, which medical management is basically your doctor watching you. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, no, there's no medical therapy for aortic stenosis. And I, I will say that trial was one of the most gut-wrenching well actually that's not true it was the most gut-wrenching thing that i ever had to do in my entire career because we started getting we always knew that when the therapy worked it worked well the question was just could we deliver the valve safely Mm -hmm. and we got to a point through the european trials where we really felt confident we could deliver the valve safely and if you have aortic stenosis and it goes untreated your mortality rates are very high and this was an all-cause mortality trial. So picture you have 175 people who were randomized to the control group. But they didn't get any therapy, and they're doing very poorly. Mm-hmm. And But the whole trial is all based on more people dying in the control group than die in the test group. Mm-hmm. So when a patient gets very sick in the test group and they say, look, I'm not doing well, I'm doing poorly, or oftentimes a family member says, my mom's not doing well, she's not doing poorly – can we cross her over and give her the valve? The answer to that question is no. Right. Because these people have to reach their endpoint. And uh. so it's it's just a it's just a horrible um, experience to have to go through, but that's what it means to do an all-cause mortality randomized trial. And people argued ethically, we didn't know what therapy was really better until we did the randomized trial. But it meant that a bunch of people had to die that once we saw the results of the trial, we knew didn't have to if they if they would have had the opportunity for treatment. Um, and it's a trial that will never get repeated in, in our space. We showed that patients who were randomized to control had a 50% mortality rate in a year, which, which is worse than almost any cancer. It's worse than almost any disease out there, 50% wow. mortality in a year. Um, and the average age of our patients was about 83 years old. So this was not a young group of people. These mm-hmm. were older people and they were very sick. In the test group, 
we had a 30% mortality at a year. So we had 70% survival versus 20 versus, sorry, 50%, which is a 20% absolute difference, which is almost unheard of in any clinical trial. Normally when somebody says they have a 20% improvement, they, that's, that's five patients doing well versus four patients doing well and doing the 20% that way. Mm-hmm. It's not 20% on an absolute. Randomized should be the key team term here, but you, you literally patients were assigned to have the treatment or not just in a, in a, in a random fashion through a lottery or whatever. That was the, 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 yes. the sole selector. Yeah. There's, there's a program that you run in clinical trials that just randomly pops out yeah. a number and you're basically, you know, it's a very fancy heads or tails system uh, where you go one way or the other. I have a note here that, uh, that you're, you've pushed for diversity in clinical trials and, and community outreach to encourage screenings to, to provide equal access. Is, 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 did this come into play in this trial or, or did that come to play in a, in a later trial? Uh, no, it didn't come to play at all in this trial. Randomized trials are just randomized yeah, patients sure. and they get done where the, the issue has really come forward and it's been more, um, probably a little bit more recent is, when you look at clinical trials, uh, minorities are terribly underrepresented mm-hmm. and there's, there's a lot of reasons for this. And, and some of the challenges are the requirements, the basic requirements for what centers are allowed to do TAVR. So even when we commercialized, there was a national coverage decision that was put out by, uh, CMS, FDA and the medical societies. And it focused a lot on rational dispersion of this new therapy. And the big issue was, Hey, we have this wonderful new therapy that showed well in the trials, but as we disperse this out into more hospitals outside the clinical trials, you know, we don't, we want to make sure that the quality of the outcomes don't, um, uh, don't disintegrate. And, but what that means is they focused on hospitals that had large cardiac programs and big open heart surgery programs, which is a lot of academic hospitals. And when you look at those hospitals, by and large, they just are more in a more fluent areas. Mm-hmm. And so you don't end up with lower volume community hospitals having access to these new therapies. And when you look at even cardiac surgery, the the primary factor determining where a patient has their open heart surgery done is proximity to home. Uh, People tend to go to the hospitals that are closest to them. Uh, Insurance plays a big role. People are in these, you know, these closed networks and Mm -hmm. you want to go in network versus out of network. So there's all these things that drive this, but if a hospital isn't in your neighborhood, you know, you're an 80 year old aortic stenosis patient. It's multiple visits to the hospital to get screened for this therapy. Um, it's just not easy. And and when we've looked commercially at how the technology has been deployed, we've just seen very rapid um, adoption of this therapy in in uh, uh, white communities and in communities of color. We just see very very poor adoption. I'd like to pursue that. Uh, in a bit, let's let's go to uh, you obtained FDA approval in, in 2011. What was the uh, commercialization rollout like? Uh, how, how difficult or easy was it to build a to build a market for this and to to obtain customers? Well, one of the biggest challenges was the first the indication that we had was for inoperable patients. And mm-hmm. so that was the first indication we had. But every hospital that qualified wanted to immediately be commercialized. Um, everybody wanted access to this therapy. Everybody had seen the clinical trial data. It was in the New England Journal of Medicine. It was presented as a late-breaking trial. It was a it was a landmark moment in in the development of of hard valves, let alone 
you know, just transcatheter. Um, but for Edwards, we didn't have a cardiology business. Our business had been uh, cardiac surgery. Mm-hmm. And in the clinical trials, the reason it's called the partner trial is we made cardiologists and surgeons work together uh, on the procedure and develop it, which is a little bit like a shotgun marriage because they're <laughs> not natural um natural compadres right uh but but we did that in the trial and the first version of the technology that got approved though was the transfemoral version through the leg um because that's the only thing we did in the inoperable patients so we were launching primarily to we were launching to heart teams but the the primary operator in almost all these cases was the interventional cardiologist and we didn't have any interventional cardiology people so we had to build a sales force from scratch which means we hired people who were interventional people from all different companies. And I was, I was fortunate to hire a really, truly exceptional head of sales, um, Kristen Skelton, who sort of became my, my partner on all things about this. But um, we needed people to understand. And, and part of the thing that, that was important about launching this technology is I tried to be a good student and I've watched where other new technologies that had a lot of promise launched and then fell apart. And I, when I did the business model for transcatheter heart valves, one of the things that I thought about a lot is everybody sits around in a, in a conference room and they debate how big the market opportunity is. But nobody ever talks about what it is. And by that, I mean the device. And so I remember putting together a grid and I said, you know, if our procedural success rate is 80%, that which means we work in four out of five cases, then that means this is probably only going to be done in teaching hospitals it's probably going to be reserved for the sickest patients. They're probably only going to do, you know, a couple of months and, you know, the, I'm only going to be able to charge X for the device. So that makes the market model fairly small. Mm-hmm. But if I can get to a 95% procedural success rate, then I think 500 hospitals could do this. Um, they, they, they wouldn't reserve it for just their sickest people. They'd start doing, you know, 10 a month and I could charge a lot more for it. And that would be, that would be this. And I remember presenting that model and, it got the conversation in the right place because everybody started saying, instead of saying how big is the opportunity, everybody could see how big the opportunity was. It was, how do we get the procedural success rate up to 95%? Hmm. So when we launched, we did something that to my knowledge, nobody else has ever done. We developed an app and we tracked procedural success rates um, of every case that we did. And what we told the reps were that we would compensate them on procedural success over volume. Interesting. So if a rep um, had a 98% procedural to success rate, but he was 98% to plan, he would make more than somebody that had a 93% procedural success rate, but was 110% to plan. Mm-hmm. Because my belief was if we launched this and our procedural success rate was really high, then the market was going to develop and it was going to take off and this thing would, would really have legs. But if we, you know, had things go bad early on, um, it could, it could destroy the market before we ever got an opportunity to, to do it. And, and, and I, I always felt that there's a lot of people on the sidelines waiting to take their shots. Not all the surgeons were excited about this new procedure. If, you know, payers, you know, were skeptical, even regulators, you know, you've run this one big trial, but you know, how do we really know? Mm-hmm. And so I just felt the onus was on us to do, to do great work for patients. And I just always felt that if we did spectacular things for patients, that's the thing that inoculated me from any criticism. Um, you know, if somebody came along and said, this technology is very expensive. It is look at our procedural success rate. Mm-hmm. You know, surgeons were like, you know, you're disrupting the, you know, the traditional, you know, surgeon, uh, 
space. And it's like, yes, but look at our procedural success rate. <laughs> if, I, if we did that really, really well, I just feel that was the thing that inoculated us and it would make this a great business, but also a really fun business to run because when you're doing wonderful things for people, it's, it's, that's, that's why we do what we do. That's great. How, how does a sales rep uh, impact the, the success, success rate? Is it a matter of making sure you're selling to the right surgeons and you're not overselling so you can give them enough support? What, what influence do they have on that? Do they have an, on that number? Well, tremendous amount because, you know, you got to remember this is a brand new procedure. Mm-hmm. So this isn't something that any doctor in clinical practice went to med school and learned. Right. We had 20 sites in the country that participated in the clinical in the first clinical trial. And that's the whole experience base. And, and, you know, we had some people in Europe so we could bring over proctors, but we were teaching every heart team from scratch how to do this procedure, which meant we were screening their patients. We were, we did the imaging workups for them. We helped them with the valve size selection. But the other thing we did is tell them, this is not a good patient. Do not do this patient. Um, they, they won't likely get a good outcome. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, we had field clinical specialists that did a lot of that work, but our reps did that work also. And everybody in my field sales force at the time, and, and remember we also did device prep, everybody on my team could prep a device and could screen a patient and do the procedure and support a case. And um, uh, so a big thing that came down was telling people what cases we wouldn't do, mm-hmm. um, that we wouldn't support. And that was very uncomfortable for our field sales force because in the past they'd only ever been rewarded by one thing, which was selling a device. Doctors had never were not at all used to nor comfortable with somebody telling them they wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were just cases that came forward that were sort of hail mary cases that we knew from our clinical experience wouldn't end well, but the technology would still get penalized. Mm. And. That sale was never more valuable to me than the stain of that bad case. That's, that's a great point, and that's you're right. There's a there's a there's a line there between you know trying to make that hail mary pass, but then also putting a patient through a procedure that you ultimately know isn't going to help them. Um, you could be criticized either way, I suppose. You you can, but the, but early on in our in our clinical trials, we had the in the feasibility work. When the, I mentioned before, when the technology worked, it was a miracle. When yeah. it didn't work, there was a you'd say, well, the patient was really, really sick. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we were just trying to help and it didn't work. That's not really our fault. And I sort of got to a point where you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a sports guy and I'm like, you are what your record says you are. Yeah. And and, you know, you can't sit here and say we were eight and eight. But, man, if we'd have made three more plays, we'd have been in the playoffs. No, you're <laughs> eight and eight. Yeah. And and we were you know, we had to be really honest with ourselves. We had a 50% mortality rate and we could make excuses all day long, but at the end of the day, that's what our record said we were. And until we changed that, we were never going to be anything. And part of getting real with ourselves was saying, these patients do not benefit and we need to stop because it's hurting our record. Mm-hmm. And, and us being honest about what our outcomes really told us about our therapy was, was I think one of those moments in time where everything began to change. So that's that's great how you built the business out. I know we've been we've been talking for a long time. Uh, let's uh, let's move forward to sort of the uh, the advances you've made since the the first generation. Uh, what has that iteration or innovation process been like uh, in, in bringing the next generation of, of valves up? Well, it's funny when we go back and we look at the first generation technology. I think it 
it would probably be like the Wright brothers looking at a 747 and looking back at what they did and said, wow, I can't really fly that thing. Um, it, it really is kind of one of those moments when we go back and look at those initial devices. They seem so crude today um, uh, compared to what we have now. We have a procedure now. I mean, I want to say when that the original device had a, it was a 24 French device. And I want to say our vascular complication rates were around like 17%. I mean, they were, they were really high. I mean, it was hard to get this device in through the femoral just due to its size. And now I look with, with our e-sheath technology, which is an expanding sheath. Um, so when the valve moves through, it's sort of like, you know, a golf ball going through a garden, garden hose. We don't have to dilate the whole vessel, just those focal areas at a time. And I look at, at our device, which is so elegant and low profile now, and it has a, a really effective skirt on it that prevents leakage around the valve. And, and you go from our first trials in these inoperable patients, our last trial, our last big trial that we did for um, low risk surgical patients, um, which was still, a, a you know, I think the average age of the patient was still like 73. So it wasn't exactly super young people, but um, 99% of our patients were alive and well at a year. Uh, that means free from death and free wow. from a significant stroke. And, and that's, that to me is the most remarkable statistic of this whole journey uh, is having 99% of our patients alive and well in a year when you're talking with 73 year olds to start with. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just, it's just been this in, insane. Um, it, it's been a journey and part of it is the technology, but so much of it is the procedure itself and what things we learned in terms of how to do the procedure, how to screen the patients, um, what mattered and what didn't and, and really streamlining, streamlining the procedure. Uh, we, we now do it under conscious sedation, uh, more often than, so our patients, we don't even put someone to sleep, uh, replacing their heart valves and, uh, the majority of patients go home the next day. If you would have told me, you know, 10 years ago that this procedure would be less invasive than childbirth or having your appendix out, I, you know, I just shook my head, but that's really where we are today. That's amazing. So it's the same as a colonoscopy. I mean, that's, uh, (laughs) that's quite a, uh quite a leap where where did the, the feedback come from to improve the the the, the tools and and the procedure did you work with both uh interventionalists and uh and, and cardiac specialists uh did it come mostly internal i'm sure there's a blend of both ex- external and internal but i just wonder if there was one one source that was uh perhaps uh more uh more provided more feedback than others um you know, we, I think we did a, a good job getting the feedback from our clinicians. I think one of the toughest things, though, is, is your clinician will say something to you, but you have to interpret that into a meaningful change. Mm-hmm. And, and it's that translation. And, and people don't always know what they want. They just want something better, yeah. if that makes sense. And so we would know what they didn't love, but how our engineers would figure out how to turn that into another device that actually gave them what they loved was, was kind of where the, where the magic happened. And I think we had tremendous feedback from our clinicians. We had tremendous feedback from, you remember our field clinical specialists and our, our reps were in every single case. So we got wonderful feedback from them, even things about simplifying the device prep. Uh, you know, how do we make this easier for people? How do we mistake proof things? All that sort of stuff, we we were just really religious about it. And we tracked any customer experience that we had. And, and one of the beauties was having a person in every single case um, 
you know, sometimes a doctor thinks something happened in a case, but that's not exactly what happened. We had our eyes and ears in every case. So somebody could say, no, no, that's not exactly what happened. He didn't see what his assistant did. And his assistant actually pulled on the wire and he didn't see it. And we don't want to, we don't want to out them, but that's what happened. And, mm-hmm. and so we, we wouldn't chase bogeys because we, we had good intel of what actually took place when we had a tough case. Great. And, and where does this technology, where is this headed? What do you, what do you have planned next uh, as we wrap up this, uh, this conversation and uh, again, conclude 10 years since, uh, since the approval of, uh, of, of Sapien? I, I think what's been proven by this technology is it's, is it's incredibly safe and it's incredibly effective. And I think what we need to do is rethink how we treat the disease mm-hmm. because when in the, in the uh, surgical paradigm, you know, and if you're going to have to have open heart surgery, you're, you're not going to get that proactively, right? You're going to get that when you really need it. So the mindset had always been wait as long as possible until the symptoms were significant and the heart was really failing to intervene. Um, but when you think about it, we don't treat any other disease that way. You don't show up at the doctor with stage through two cancer and they say, well, come back when it's stage four and then we'll start therapy. <laughs> we, we, we generally like to, like to stop a disease before it gets bad, before it does more damage. But when the solution is open heart surgery, that's tough to do. Now that we have a procedure that you know patients are awake and they can go home the next day, should we really be waiting for these symptoms to develop and the, and the heart to be getting sicker and sicker and irreparable damage happening? And, and I think the argument is, no, we probably shouldn't be doing that. So we're running one trial, early TAVR trial, where we're looking at patients that have severe aortic stenosis, but don't yet have symptoms. And we're going to randomize them to traditional therapy, which is waiting for symptoms and saying, does it really make sense to wait for symptoms or is it better to intervene earlier? The next uh, trial that we're running, which we're just getting started on is our progress trial, which we're saying, should we really wait for the disease to get severe or should we be treating it when it's moderate? Should we be treating it at an earlier stage before it starts doing damage to the heart? And we think we have a procedure that's safe and efficacious and patient friendly enough to do that. So we're going to start on that trial. But I think what we're trying to look at now is, when is the opportune time to intervene on a patient with aortic stenosis? And, and, and you know, the trials are going to tell us. And if, if it turns out doing it earlier is not a great idea, then we shouldn't do it. Um, but, but no matter what we learn from these trials, we're going to know definitively, I believe, when the sweet spot is for intervention, when we should be waiting and when we should be moving faster. And, and so I'm super excited to see how these trials go. Fantastic. Well, it's a, it's a great medtech story, and uh, I'm, I'm grateful for you to join it, to sharing it with us on the podcast and, and for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much for having me. It's, it's always fun to talk about this, this therapy and, and kind of remember this journey because it's, it's been one that uh, I'd say just being a part of it was just uh, such a blessing for me just personally and professionally. I can, I can hear that in your answers. So thanks, thanks again for, for sharing all those details. Thanks so much. All right. Well, that is a wrap. We'll have more on the Taver business uh, in a month or so on our Medtronic Talks podcast. I'll be speaking with Nina Goodhart of Medtronic for that podcast. So uh, please do make sure you subscribe to Medtronic Talks. It's another podcast that we put out here at Device Talks. And of course, please do subscribe to this podcast. You can find both Device Talks Weekly Podcast and Medtronic Talks on all major podcast players. Just follow and subscribe 
and future episodes will be sent directly to your phone or whatever device you're listening to these podcasts on. Well, once again, Chris Newmarker is not with us, so I'll just tell you how to find him on social media. He is at Newmarker, as in a Newmarker on Twitter. He is Chris Newmarker, same spelling on LinkedIn. You can find me on Twitter. I am at MedTechTom, and of course, I'm also on LinkedIn, Tom, S-A-L-E-M-I. We would appreciate it if you'd connect with us, appreciate it if you would share this podcast, and when you do, connect to Chris and myself so we can follow those conversations And finally, don't forget to follow Device Talks, Mass Device, and Medical Design and Outsourcing as well, so you'll get the latest information, news, and analysis of the medical device industry. Thanks again for joining us on this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. Tune in next week. Yes, we'll be back next week, and we'll have another Device Talks Weekly Podcast episode waiting for you.